There's a lot of money involved here, and one of the big shifts we have to make is a cultural one. Uh, we've, we have to think in a much more innovative way because the pace of change in the world in which we live is unprecedentedly fast, and so we have to treat all of that change in the world as creating great opportunities. That's why I keep on saying, and it's true, there's never been a more exciting time to be in Australia. That's Malcolm Turnbull, the former Australian Prime Minister, talking about his policy for innovation in Australian society. Whatever that truly means, on closer inspection of his speech, it was nonsensical, a hallmark of the early 21st century political and corporate life where wordplay and jargon was designed to muddy true intention. And speeches like that sent us into pits of confusion. This episode will cover some Australian responses to these kinds of linguistic battlefronts through two bands from an intertwined community in Melbourne, Australia. From the main era of post-punk act Total Control to Dick Diver, whose turn of poetic wordplay and jangling guitars unwittingly started a subgenre, given the less than flattering name of Dole Wave. Lend me a fiver. I like Dick Diver. I'm Max Easton, and this episode of Barely Human comes into the 2000s to look at wordplay, strange categorisation, and the contemporary Australian underground. The back end of this series differs from its beginnings because we're now firmly in the present, and when looking at recent decades past, the clarity of distance is lost. But there is an image of the last two decades forming in the rearview mirror, even if it's kind of blurry. The government's belief that the world community must deal decisively with Iraq. The new millennium started with 9-11 and a Western invasion of the Middle East, continued through a global financial crisis and moved on to the election of some of the most bizarre and evil political figures in history. And while that absolutely defines the era, one of the hidden aspects of the early 21st century was the ineffectiveness of the figures who arrived to counter those events. The apparently progressive politicians, media commentators and talk show hosts were all co-opting the language of revolution, hope and change. And while they seem to be saying everything right, they seem to stand for very little in hindsight. We will hopefully get most or all of our money back. We might even turn a profit. False promises and empty chatter is not a new phenomenon, but the 2010s saw forms of doublespeak creep into every aspect of society, like snakes in the grass. The lines between left and right, worker and boss, good and bad, all became blurry. What side were you supposed to be on when what you'd once call a corporation was now being described as a disruptive startup delivering creative, innovative tech solutions? Even terms that once had countercultural meaning were co-opted by industry. Collaboration, creativity, and even the idea of DIY was taken from art and punk history and brought into the workplace. DIY was no longer an ethic of separating yourself from industries and institutions to operate independently with your community, it was now an approach to doing your job on your own without assistance from management for a company who was now claiming to be disruptive of something. These cynical deep dives into the dictionary were no accident, but a way for the right-leaning political centre to gain consent while eroding social safety net. Don't risk your low interest rates and your stable job and your children's employment security and the strengths of the best economy this country's had since World War II. 
Australia is a prime example of how this kind of language assisted in that erosion. Under the guise of freedom of choice and easing the public burden, successive Australian governments privatised phone companies and airlines and then started on the health and education systems. And as the casual workforce doubled in size under the guise of flexibility, the long-protected welfare system became a target too. That strange wordplay was present when under the active employment strategy, the government outsourced job-seeking arrangements to private companies and in order to slam home the point that welfare wasn't a safety net or a social service, the doll was given a name to prepare it for the 21st century. What was once named the unemployment benefit was now called New Start Allowance. And maybe Australia's welfare policy is a weird turn for barely human, but in pivoting from the counterculture history of the series to the contemporary condition of social erosion, the New Start program had an unexpected link to a band from Melbourne of the late 2000s, who in 2011 released a record that Mox celebrated a return to unemployment, which they called New Start Again. Melbourne, Victoria has often been considered the cultural capital of Australia. Cheap rent and the state support of the arts meant that a number of music scenes flourished to create a world of interconnected musicians and artists. Melbourne has long had an undying pub rock element, a thriving world of electronic experiments and a lively punk and hardcore scene. But for a brief period in the early 2010s, Creatives in the city took an unexpected turn to a more relaxed sound. With jangling guitars and clean walking bass lines, they soundtracked the vocal turn to a soft Australian drawl. And there were probably a dozen or so bands indicative of this new sound, but Dick Diver were the most iconic. Dick Diver began in 2008 as the bedroom songwriting duo of Rupert Edwards and Alistair Mackay. They didn't initially have plans to form a band, but soon enough, painter Steph Hughes joined on drums, and then on bass came Al Montfort, who would one day play in almost a dozen Melbourne bands simultaneously. That could be the interchangeable story of the formation of a thousand bands through history, but this one struck upon something that was unique for its time and place. Their subject matter was personal and seemingly trivial, which was something that Al described not as disposable subject matter, but core to them as people. Of course, bands have been honest and intimate in their songwriting for decades, but in 2008, this kind of storytelling was somewhere between off-trend and passé, particularly in a community ruled by the grandstanding of pub rock. There was even something in Dick Diver's early recordings between 2008 and 2011 that felt defiantly opposed to rock music's schlock. In their wordplay and their specific imagery, they found something that somehow felt universal, demonstrated by songs like Through the D, which really was just a song about gazing through a bakery window. Diver wrote songs that referenced household cleaning products Is it widens your heart? and songs about toasting bread. I get out of bed, I get my toast. 
There were songs about getting forced back onto the dole, of course, and then there were your standard heartbreakers, like the tale of being stood up, called On the Bank. Sure she wouldn't mind I started on this one She'll be here any second, no doubt A message on her phone Waiting I'm alone My thumbs are melting in the grass Taking all the shade They better dress their lemon familiarity of Dick Diver's lived experience that appeared in their songs, combined with an audience that resembled a friendship circle, created an immediate sense of community. That local feel created an intimacy between band and audience that ended up being a prime motivating factor for people like Steph Hughes. I can't sing properly when he has that fucking facial hair. I can't see it. Okay, let's go from the In the early 2010s, Dick Diver became well-loved around the country as a part of their engagement with the nation's subcultures. The band would play mixed bills with hardcore bands and electronic acts, but their influence extended outward. They were the band that you could bring your family member or work colleague to come see in the front bar of the local pub, and that welcoming into the fold rather than the often alienating environment of their punk and hardcore surrounds made it feel like they were more than just another inner-city folk band, but something new entirely. In 2013, Dick Diver recorded their second record in a holiday house in the coastal town of Phillip Island. They called it Calendar Days, and the songwriting continued to draw on the familiar. Kicking rocks down the street, stuck on lonely drives down the coast, and gazing blankly into the distance from the foot of the driveway. Its songs were often cheerful, but it was the pure melancholy of the record's title track that hit the hardest. Calendar Days was released during a special time for Australian music. The cities were alive with newly formed bands releasing great records alongside established underground acts, and they were communicating with each other. Through the combined growth of social media alongside websites with a legitimate interest in underground music, you'd find Melbourne websites like Mess and Noise and their active, if controversial, message boards being used as a hub for bands like Dick Diver. While rogue independent websites like Crawl Space and zines like Distort communicated across underground scenes. In the same year, British masthead The Guardian opened an Australian imprint and engaged with local independent music just long enough to name Dick Diver's Calendar Days their 2013 Australian Album of the Year. But not everyone in the country was convinced by the delightful sounds of Dick Diver. It's hard to imagine a folky guitar pop act raising anyone's ire, but at the peak of Dick Diver's fame, there were dozens of similar-sounding bands who were aligning their style, intent and sound. There were the acts who preceded them, like Scott and Charlene's Wedding and School of Radiant Living, and their closely related peers like the Twerps and Boomgates. 
And then there were the newly appearing replicants popping up in every Australian city. And for the underground music fan who saw all these pop bands appearing on their punk bills, they were growing bitter about this fanciful scourge. A member of Sydney punk band Lowlife referred to the growing trend as A bunch of kids with fringes and ironic t-shirts playing flying non-songs. And with comments like that, the sound was given an image. This ironic t-shirt brigade began to resemble not so much a set of bands, but something bordering a genre or a movement. Something that might take over like a virus. Like proto-punk, post-punk and the garage revival before it, Amateur taxonomists went searching for names to define this guitar pop thing. Messin' noise writer Doug Wallen called it The New Melbourne Jangle? Which didn't stick. And in response, as a gathering in-joke on the message boards of Messin' Noise, it found a name. Dollwave. We are the Department of Human Services, and we work to provide the very best in government services to all of you. Dick Diver sought to distance themselves from the ridiculous term, but whether it was meant as an insult or not, the moniker was forever tied to them. The eye-rolling response to all the relentless jangling was ironically embraced by a wave of newcomers. And the term that originated as a put-down actually seemed to make sense of the music. From eye-rolling to chin-stroking, a series of articles then intellectualised and debated Dollwave that were published on various blogs, on websites like Crawlspace and The Guardian, and even academic website The Conversation. And all that sparked endless responses in comment threads and on message boards. This internet storm of mid-2014 eventually fell silent, and the Dollwave controversy seemed to have ended until a few years later when the joke name was set in stone. Formalised into historical death, Dollwave became not just a joke or a nickname, but categorised as a genre when it was given its own Wikipedia page. Dick Diver released one more record in 2015 called Melbourne, Florida. His title was a wry joke about their now globalised Australiana, far from their origins as a band singing about the doll on Newstart again. Then Rupert and Alistair moved overseas, Al and Steph moved on to their other projects, and the band quietly disbanded. And while Dollwave was either loved or loathed by the people surrounding it, it had an undeniable resonance, which is why we're here talking about it. What was often missed in both the praise and critique of Dollwave, though, was that even as a silly umbrella term, its bands made up just one part of a multifaceted community. If you look beyond the discussion of jangling guitar pop to the shared values of its players, a cross-pollination of dozens of artistic projects were occurring across the city of Melbourne. A creative community that united a band like Dick Diver with dozens of bands of other styles that they often played with. There was one group that could even be considered a central hub of that cross-pollinated community. They started when Dick Diver producer and Eddie Current Suppression Ring guitarist Mikey Young began jamming with Dan Stewart, the singer of hardcore band Straight Jacket Nation. And unlike the pleasant retreat and poetics of Dick Diver and the Dollwave movement, they had a cold, hard take on the confusion of contemporary society through the agitated mania of total control. I live in a hole. I like total control. Mikey and Dan devised the Total Control project so they could write pop songs as a point of difference from their garage and hardcore band. 
They took deep dives back to the analogue synths and vintage drum machines, similar to the electronic bedroom project that had its own small phenomenon in the late 2000s. But when they got to recording their first 7-inch, they decided to add some live drums and found artist and illustrator James Vinciguerra. Not long after, Al Munford of Dick Diver and their friend Zephyr Pavey joined, and through these members they made up an active hub of the Australian underground music community. Al and Zephyr had direct connections to probably a dozen other bands, and with James they had a poster artist for the international punk community. Dan, also known as DX, ran the broad-reaching underground press and distro hub of the distort scene, and in Mikey, they had the most prolific mixing and mastering engineer in the country. I can almost guarantee that if you've bought an independent record in the last decade, at least one of the members of Total Control will have their name in its liner notes. Mastered by Mikey Young. 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 Mastered by Mikey the Budgie Young. Back in 2008, Total Control were evolving from an electronic project into a band, with their sound circling a kind of retro-futurism. Krautrock, Cold Wave and harsher European post-punk influences were mixed with New Wave and an 80s pop sensibility, and it made up a collage of lost years that somehow spoke very much to the contemporary. It was all there in the directness of Garage, mixed with a horror show element on the first song of their first 7-inch, called Stairway. Their patchwork influences would underlie a deliberate and precise vocal attack. While Dick Diver reflected on the items that littered their kitchen table, Total Control looked to the anxieties that littered the world around them and created sounds of dystopia. DX's vocal was horrified, paranoid and panicked, which came out of some deeper experiences he'd had with bad hallucinogenic trips around the time the band was formed. Combining that with a reading list that included the sci-fi of Philip K. Dick an existentialism of nature, he created a disturbed songwriting style that appeared on tracks like One More Tonight. One More Tonight appeared on the 2011 LP called Henchbeat, Formalising the evolution of Bedroom Project to band, their electronic experiments became linking ideas between tracks, weaving through the record in one of the most artfully put together and complete albums of the contemporary Australian underground. But it wasn't only the sonic artistry that first captured the attention of the international punk community. It was its cover art. The Hengebeat cover was despised by fans, cynics and bystanders, and even the band members themselves would have to justify it. As DX explained, It's easy to make a cover that people want to look at, but it's difficult to make a record cover that's almost universally deplored by everyone you know, including yourself, who is revolted by it. The cover for Hengebeat was drawn by artist Rasmus Svensson, and James had to insist that the band use it despite their protest. 
Words will never do it justice, but the cover was set on a bright red background, covered with pixelated digital pockmarks, and with the pen feature of Microsoft Paint, it was scribbled over loosely with the band name, album title, and patterns that almost resembled scribbled-out swastikas. And in an even more offensive move, the album was released as an oversized gatefold, putting a couple extra bucks on postage and purchase, just so you could gaze at even more of this horrendous cover. When opening it to its full width, you then revealed a series of secret messages which would end up as themes that haunted the rest of the band's discography. The equivalence of convictions and fear. Futility of the future. Paranoia of constant surveillance. The addiction of conspiracy theories. Narcissistic apocalyptic fantasies. The drive to laugh first, last and loudest. And the paranoid desire to get from the first laugh to the last word arrived on songs like No Bibs. The Hengebeat LP stitched together short, aggressive synth-punk with long electronic experiments, and it was considered a modern classic almost from the moment it was released. But there really wasn't much out there that sounded like Hengebeat in 2011. It's clear to those who engaged with Total Control at the time that this LP made him one of the biggest names among the international underground communities. But there's really no evidence to be found that can back up that claim. With no chart numbers to prove the influence of an underground act, maybe the only thing we can rely on is the fact that a hell of a lot of bands began to sound a lot like Total Control in the years that followed. Three years after the behemoth of their first album, the band released a record that mythologised an absurd yet ominous event that occurred in Vatican City in 2014. Of all people, it was the Pope who accidentally inspired the cover art for the second Total Control record. Two children joined Pope Francis for his weekly prayer from the papal apartments. The pontiff used the service to call for peace and reconciliation in Ukraine and to symbolise this, the children released two white doves into the air. But as they took off, one was attacked by a passing seagull while the other was repeatedly pecked by a crow. Noticeably upset, the Pope embraced the boy and patted his head, while the young girl just laughed. <laughs> the chaos that surrounded the Pope's assaulted doves became the cover art for the typical system LP. A dove flies blissfully unaware into the distance as a crow comes in for the attack and a seagull flies in the opposite direction. And that maniacally comical scenario fit the lyrical approach that DX was forming on the record. Coming across every bit as confounding as listening to the XPM babbling about innovation, DX placed mirrors against mirrors, with lyrics twisting in and over on themselves like a conspiracy. He spat identical sounds with drastically different meanings on songs like Two Less Jacks. By switching between victor and victim, no place and bad taste, ice head and I said, 
all meaning dissolved with every line. Like the Pope's doves of peace being killed on release, it felt manic and ominous, speaking back at the doublespeak of the times that was steeped not just in the music of total control, but in the world around them. Total Control were appreciated not just by their immediate community, but by industry-approved big music media represented by websites like Pitchfork and Vice, the cynical arbiters of taste of the early 21st century. That kind of growing attention would build larger and larger audiences, which meant the band were faced with the problem of having to play increasingly larger and professional venues. Inevitably, those spaces would come with the added ordeal of extra middle people, more email addresses and contracts in the form of fillable PDFs. There's a lot of money involved here. But instead of fronting the money for a manager or a record label that would contend with this for them, they remained independent of unnecessary mediators and took turns playing a role that they described as strapping on a ponytail. A mockery of the greasy industry stereotype that they resented. Look, you can stay here in the big leagues and play by the rules, or you can go back to the farm club in Aurora. It's your choice. Total Control seemed to absorb their hype wearily, and while their early releases ran a thread through nihilism and bad trips, they found eventually that laughter was the only appropriate response to it all. In 2017, they released a 12-inch EP called Laughing at the System. It featured a dense experimental approach with hints of the ragged post-punk they played with a decade prior, and it brought them closer to some thematic threads that ran throughout their discography. Laughter appeared on early songs like No Bibs and One More Tonight, And while it was never truly celebratory comedy for them, it was this record's title track that treated laughter as a complete break from reality. But while Total Control were laughing at the system and strapping on a ponytail, it was around this time that both the system and its institutions firmly embraced them. In 2018, Total Control were billed as the headline act to appear on the main stage of the Sydney Opera House. But there were some disconnects. Event curator Nick Warnock of record label RIP Society created an official poster that was just DX's face in black and white run through a face swap app to give him an artificially cheerful grin. And the Opera House Promotions Department, who either didn't care or didn't notice, went on to paste this absurd image on public spaces around the city as they might have for Pavarotti. These posters remained glued hilariously to the walls of Sydney for months. But even as an absurd representation of the disconnect between subculture and institution, Total Control met the Opera House in the middle on the night. The band set up in the centre of the stage and build themselves total control and friends, flanking themselves with contributors to the web of bands that surrounded them back home in Melbourne. Their friends like Xanthi Waite, Amy Hill and Nick Caccelli kept total control in touch with the sounds of the opera house by playing horns and strings, performing together on the thinking person's pedestal of this gate-kept cultural institution to briefly bring the music back to the people for $35 a ticket. Sure, it's an opera house is like a private company, but, you know, it seems to be like a public institution. It's not so much a, a weird, you know, business venture. Bright left, bright left, range fixed, 
Dick Diver and Total Control may be seen as wholly separate entities, probably because one was slapped with the Dole Wave moniker and the other played something that was more familiar to punk audiences. But when their stories are told side by side, I think you can kind of see their connections. And if you trace lines between the other projects of those band's members, you find endless threads of interconnecting themes and ideas. One leads to the experimental folk of bands like Lower Plenty or Russell Street Bombings. Another goes to the guitar pop of Primo and Terry and Boomgates. And then there are links to the volume and power of Straightjacket Nation and Eastlink, or the absurdity of Constant Mongrel and the UV Race. And whether that's just a music scene or a community is probably up for discussion. But if it's seen as a collective, if it had a name or a moment to tie itself to, I wonder if it might be viewed differently. I often get this feeling that all those bands will one day be viewed in the same way that we now view New York's counterculture, LA's Hollywood punks, or London's post-punks. They attempted to defy law and order. They thought they could snub the conventions of decent society when they... Well, maybe I just hope that that's the case. In this episode, I think I found the need to convince you and probably myself that Dick Diver and Total Control mattered. For a series that has celebrated the characters who opposed convention, antagonised needless structures and operated defiantly outside of the broader culture, all of a sudden I felt the need to pose Dick Diver as the band that received the Guardian's Album of the Year award, as though that meant anything. And then we ended the episode with Total Control on the stage of the Sydney Opera House. Institutional approval is a sign of life. And now I even want to mention that in 2018, a model for fashion label Celine posts topless in an ad campaign, revealing their brand new laughing at the system tattoo. But what evidence am I even searching for anymore? As this series gets closer to wrapping up, I really can't tell whether I'm advocating for subcultural artists to have countercultural influence, or for them to act independently of higher powers to make strong communities. And maybe that's part of the contemporary condition too. With blurred boundaries drawn with circles of contradictions, it's unclear who or what the underground is operating underneath of. It's even unclear if we're laughing at or laughing with the system. Counterculture. <laughs> My name is Gita. <laughs> <laughs>